Hi, everyone. I think this is going to be a really impactful episode, especially for me as our guest's story is really similar to what I experienced in many ways in my past. The way I came across him was pretty serendipitous. I was browsing through some bullying-related Facebook groups, and I randomly saw a post which showed a newspaper article that caught my eye. It was from the Flamborough Review, the same newspaper I had a part-time job at when I was in high school. It was talking about a particular kid who was bullied and had been actively advocating for reform in schools and conducting motivational speeches. So I reached out to him and learned about his story, which I'm excited to help him share with my audience here. Before we start, check the podcast description for links to the show notes and other resources you may be interested in. And also apologies for the sound quality on this one. There were some problems with the connection. Just a warning for listeners, some of the conversations we will have can be distressing to hear and contain subject matter related to assault, self-harm, and suicide. However, I always try to highlight important insight and positive outcomes that can be learned from these difficult experiences. So let's get into the interview. really excited to speak with our guest Emerson Edwards today. We have a fair bit in common. Um, we both grew up in the same town, we went to the same high school, and we struggled with bullying. Only it was a decade or two apart. I'm sad to hear that things don't sound like they've changed much despite the buzz I'm hearing about zero tolerance and anti-bullying awareness in schools. I think um, schools are missing a huge piece of the puzzle, more than one piece in fact. Um, That's what we're here to try and change. In this episode, we'll learn just how serious the bullying got in Emerson's case, and what that led to, both positive and negative. Today, Emerson is a vocal, motivated advocate for school reform when it comes to bullying. He's a motivational speaker, and has become involved in causes like Voices Against Bullying to effect change locally and set a precedent for how school boards can better approach these serious issues. Emerson, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. So let's get started at the beginning. Um, When and how did all of this start? So for me personally, um, it was pretty much as early as JK, um, from what I can remember. And obviously, bullying in JK means a very different thing from what bullying in grade six or seven is um in jk it's that kind of nitpicking and teasing that you know other kids just single a person out and it's like oh your stupid face or whatever so i mean from a young age it's hard to to be ostracized like that but um when you're that young it's it's um it's in the the building blocks of JK and SK to teach children how to be good people. And so it's, <laughs> it's kind of that, that early stage of, you know, some kids haven't quite caught on yet, I guess. Are you saying that there is a lack of building blocks that help um, teach kids the proper way to interact with people or deal with their feelings? Or what is it that's, that's missing there? I think, I think in the beginning of school, we really need to focus on the feelings aspect of it. Um, because when we're going from 
living at home with our parents as children to all of a sudden in this class of 30, 40 kids, it's, there's a lot of new emotions coming about. And I've met a lot of people throughout my time doing anti-bullying work that all agree that, you know, a focus on how to deal with those big emotions is so important and it should be one of those biggest building blocks um, for children in those beginning days that should be just as important as learning the alphabet or learning the first 10 numbers, you know? Right, yeah. In those times, I mean, what caused kids to single you out? I mean, in the beginning, I I wasn't noticeably bigger than the other children. Um, just just different enough that they could tell, you know? Um, there was a slight difference in body size at that time between us. And I think that's what initially kind of singled me out. But also, I was I was a quieter kid. And I feel like when you're a little quieter, it's easier for them to kind of latch on to you in a way. Yeah, they, they sort of pick up on subtle cues um, that might highlight a difference between them and, and someone else. And sometimes these are so subtle, you don't even really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So then walk us through the progression of the bullying. It sort of started early. Um, having started early, is that what sort of kept the momentum going? It just continued because that was the pattern? Or how did that progress? I mean, I grew up with these kids from day one, you know, like having been in the same class with most of these kids, JK through grade eight. Um, like I went to a pretty small elementary school, probably 500 people was the max we'd have in the school at any given time. And I had a pretty small graduating class of kids I'd known since JK. So I feel like it's easier to stick with that one kid that you're bullying than to find a new one in such a small class. So I went through a couple different bullies <laughs> over my time at the school I went to. Um, and they kind of, they, they created groups and the groups fell apart and then they kind of started to leave me alone and then a new person would come into play. So it it really started to get serious for me around grade two or three when, you know, I started to become a little noticeably bigger than the other kids, but not even that, just, you know, my performance in gym class wouldn't be as, as good as theirs. Like I couldn't keep up with them on the soccer field or, you know, small stuff that, you know, kids pick up on. And so then the, the insults still verbal turned from you know those generic insults to becoming more targeted at you know my lack of athleticism and how i was a little pudgier than the other kids and it really just kept getting worse each grade um grade four and five um the kids would you know throw food at me at lunch and I'd end up throwing my lunch away because I didn't want to eat in front of them. And, you know, they'd throw food at me, call me all these names, trash bin, all that stuff. And it sticks with me still, even to this day. And 
I've had to overcome some challenges with eating around other people and eating in public because, you know, when it's every day for, you know, years at a time, it really starts to, to break down your walls in a way. It's like an attack on your personal internal identity, really. Yeah. So, I mean, we're stuck with the bodies that we have. We can, we can sculpt and mold them. But at the end of the day, we're, we're still the same, same person that we were from the day we were born till the day we die. And so when people attack that, it's, they're attacking me. It's, it's personal then because this is my body. This is my person that I'm kind of connected with. And so when it's every day, the, the self-confidence just disappears because I started to think, you know, everybody tells me, like my parents, my, my teachers, they're telling me it's not you. But then I see a room of 15 to 20 kids throwing food at me, calling me all these names. And it's like, how could it not be me? That really illustrates just how damaging and destructive and powerful bullying can be, especially when it's not just one person. You've got it coming from many different students, peers of yours, who you relate with because you're also a kid of the same age. And then it becomes a battle in your mind whether you can continue standing up for yourself and knowing that you are right and you are not doing anything wrong when you have a bunch of these voices screaming at you and and putting you down, telling you otherwise. I can see exactly why, and I, I know exactly why it's very difficult to continue being confident in yourself because you're slowly, it's being chipped away over time and the voices of the many, it's almost like it drowns out your own inner voice. A lot of people will sort of talk about victimization and, you know, uh, you're the target, you're the victim of this assault and bullying. How do you feel about that terminology, victim? Um, What does that mean to you? How do you feel about it? I think as soon as we use a word like victim, you know, you think of the word victim and you think of, you know, a victim of assault or um, a victim of some sort of crime. And it, to me, it feels like such a belittling word. It's, you know, you weren't strong enough to defend yourself or there, there was a situation that you weren't able to get out of. Now you're labeled as a victim. So as much as I can, I label myself as a survivor of bullying because whether or not you come out of it with your self-confidence or dignity, I think As long as you're waking up every morning and getting up or just even waking up, I think you're a survivor. Bullying is a very difficult thing to go through. And I know of some people who haven't made it through it. And yeah, I think victim is a very, very strong word. And I think if we can change that terminology around, of you know it's 
it's not your fault you're being bullied. So it shouldn't be a victim. You know? I agree with you there. When you're trying to fight through something, when you're trying to regain your sense of uh, self-confidence and your will to fight, your will to stand up and make it through a day or the next hour or whatever it is, being labeled as something that has a meaning and context that might imply that you're sort of powerless or you something has been done to you that you can't control and now you're a victim. It undermines that ability for you to get up and fight because it's already like, well, it happened. What am I going to do now? So going through school and, and going back to your kind of day-to-day experience and how you dealt with it, you you made it through. You, you endured um, almost like the torture of going through this for so long. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you feel every day? And what was your day like going through the later grades in school? Yeah, so, I mean... As the bullying progressed even more, it kind of came to a head for me in grade six. We had a new student come to the school, and over the time of this student being there, they just had it out for me from the day they got to the school. And this was my first real experience with physical bullying. And I'm a big guy, and... Most of the bullies before this one had been, you know, smaller, just like average to smaller sized kids that I'm sure had their own insecurities that they were projecting on me and, you know, all the stuff that we see with, with bullies. And so, you know, my day would consist with this new, with this new bully of, you know, doing school, being scared leading up. To lunch break and then I would go outside and get beat up and that was almost a daily occurrence and then I'd come inside throw my lunch out and continue with the day and throughout my time being bullied I I mean I I self-harmed and I contemplated suicide as young as grade four which you know, you think about it, that's, that's too young to even know about suicide. So, I mean, having endured it, I'm stronger because of it. But, you know, I wouldn't wish that even on the people that bullied me. And what kind of feelings did you experience that pushed you to that level, um, that you contemplated suicide at a young age? It it was probably a very overwhelming experience. Um, what was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, in these in elementary school, you're figuring out who you are. Like we do that up until our twenties. Like that question of who am I? What am I doing here? What's my life plan? That's kind of presented to us from a young age. And so throughout elementary school, you're just figuring yourself out. Like who am I? What are my interests? What's my favorite school subject? And so when you're being bullied, it's a lot of fear. Bullies, it's, it's like fear mongering. It's, it's a, it's a psychological game that 
really takes any joy or normalcy out of your your day. And so, I mean, you know, all these new feelings and new emotions that I'm feeling are just so overwhelming that I don't know what to do with them. So I'm feeling all this self-hatred, like, why do I hate myself? And then I now know it's because I was being told to hate myself by everybody who was bullying me. And so, I mean, you know, there's sadness, there's anger, there's confusion, there's that question of why me? Why are they singling me out of everybody? Right. I've heard people say, you know, confusion and fear and anger, all of these things before, but especially confusion. It's like, what's going on? Your, Your mind is trying to figure out who you are and you're not quite certain you understand it, but your only logical conclusion is, well, I must be really screwed up then if everybody is treating me this way. Like, it's just sort of your, yeah. your almost, almost like a logical conclusion, even though it's completely not logical. It's the best you can figure out at the time. Exactly. Like, I was a kid. Like, people are kids when they're bullied a lot of the time. And, you know, that's some of the most developmental years of our brain like on a psychological level your brain is growing at some of the fastest rates that it does in your young life and so when there's all this input from other people and other perspectives of you know you're not good enough you're you're too overweight you're not you don't look the way you're supposed to you don't look like the rest of us you know there's there's all these outside inputs coming in that are influencing my own perception of myself. And so in those important years of self-discovery and just building yourself, other people did it for me in a way. And that's, that's kind of left me having to, to build myself uh, since then and kind of rebuild myself as you know this is my body that i was given i can i can change it i can do my best to to monitor my weight um this is this is the hand i've been dealt and i gotta make the best with it yeah you said you had to build yourself back up because you were almost robbed of the chance to do so in the normal course of things and in your younger years um so it's almost like an unlearning and relearning process, I suppose, and self-discovery. Mm-hmm. Why do you think um, bullies do the things they do? What causes this? I mean, I'm I I grew up in in faith and have since left the faith, but something I always kept is that you need to treat people the way you want to be treated, and so seeing these bullies treat me so awfully, it left me wondering, you know, what's happening with them that they feel the need to do this. And obviously, since I've grown up, I've talked with therapists, I've talked with other adults that have been bullied. And I now know that it's a lot of self-projection of stressors from the home life or stressors from 
their own person of thinking I'm not good enough. So then they push it onto somebody else and that makes them feel better. And then obviously you just have the, the bad apples, right? That just don't really have a reason to be so mean and dismissive and just kind of toxic that just are. Um, and I mean, for those people, we don't have an answer, but even now I've, I see the stuff my bullies were struggling with. Like I follow a couple of them on social media and, you know, one of them left home at a young age, like 15 or 16. One of them has come out as gay. And so I think back and I see, you know, they were projecting onto me their own struggles. And so I feel almost sorry for them in a way that they had to deal with that because I know it wasn't easy because they put me through the same thing. And when, when did you learn about this kind of insight into um, how they were feeling? How, how late was it before you realized that? I mean, my parents were so great with always reminding me, like when I told them I was being bullied, they would always remind me that, you know, they're, they're jealous of you. They're, they can see that you're becoming a good person and they want that. So they try to break you down or, you know, they're, they're struggling with their own stuff. So they put it onto you. So I always had that reminder of, you know, it's not your fault. And as much as they said that, you know, it comes to a point when, when it's two people versus 30 kids, you tend to believe the group of kids. What do you think would have helped you better internalize that sort of knowledge at a younger age? Like, could it have been taught somehow in school? Or how can we get kids to better understand the interplay between emotion and action at an earlier age? Yeah, I mean, I've I've done a lot of reading into into the Montessori school system. And they focus a lot on the emotional side of learning and kind of the self-discovery part and all of that. And so I think I wish there was some sort of class early on in school that teaches kids how to better express their emotions in a way that isn't destructive to other students. Um, or to even change the way the school reacts to a destructive student. Just either way, uh, a way to protect both the bully and the person being targeted. Yeah, I agree. At that young age, there's no sense in blaming and punishing kids necessarily outright because they probably won't even really understand. All they will know is that I don't like being punished, I don't like being yelled at, and that makes me feel bad, and they already feel bad, and I could see it making things worse, if that's the strategy. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's essentially what the progressive discipline does, is, I mean, if you think about it, if you have uh, a student 
that's bullying other students and they have a really tough home life, whatever it may be. And it gets to the point where they're being suspended. They're being sent back into that negative environment that's just refueling their hatred for whomever they're targeting. Because if the targeted student speaks up, it then trickles through the parents, the administrators, and back to the bully themselves. And then they get sent home and they're in that negative environment. So then they target that student because it's their fault they got sent home. I, I just think progressive discipline, the way it's being done, isn't working because there's a direct line or there's a direct line that can be made between the students of it is your fault i got sent home it's your fault i'm in trouble Mm -hmm. when really it's their own actions and kind of yeah it's their own actions that really sent them into that issue but blaming is much easier yeah that's right and i think um it is critical to help kids understand how their actions affect things. And the fact is they have the power to take any action they want to take, and that whatever action they take, there's some kind of effect. And Mm -hmm. it is easier to point a finger or blame. But do they really teach kids about that in school that just just that simple concept and, and how to manage it? Yeah, no, not even a little bit. Like, It'd be easy as showing a demonstration with dominoes. You know? Mm-hmm. you know, you push the first domino down, 30 follow. That's cause and effect. Right. So um, going back to the, the bullying, and you endured this for so long, and then it became physical. Mm-hmm. Did you fight back, stand up for yourself? Everyone always says when you're being bullied, you need to stand up for yourself. But I understand that, and I think you understand that it's not so simple to stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're a big guy, as you said, so it should be even easier for you to fight back. So w- what did you do? What was your approach? Yeah, so I mean, at this point, I'd been in um, like a mixed martial arts dojo for maybe a year and a half. and you know, in the early stages, it's, it almost hurts more than it helps because you try to protect yourself or defend yourself and then you get beat up worse. And my dojo wasn't particularly good with the, the reinforcement of, of self and person and building up your, your resilience. So I, kind of had that in the back of my mind. I knew how to defend myself on a basic level, but this student was the same size as me. And for the first time in my life, I was faced with somebody who had the means to be able to hurt me physically. And so I I never wanted to hurt anybody I was scared of hurting people because I was larger. Even to this day, I'm still not a physical person. And I mean, because I was so quiet and, you know, inward facing almost, it's why I was picked on or why I was targeted. And I always thought one day, you know, one day I'm going to, I'm going to beat him up. But 
that day never came because, you know, he would just tackle me to the ground and just start wailing on me. And so I never really had the opportunity to fight back. But also there was that part of me that didn't want to because of the the morals I was raised with of you don't hurt people even if they hurt you. So my parents always said, like, you have the knowledge on how to defend yourself. And if they hit you first and you've asked them not to hit you, you can defend yourself and we will stand by you. The the school system really doesn't like it when students physically stand up for themselves. I, I, I can't explain why, but I ended up being in trouble more often than my bully for standing up for myself physically. How is that even possible? Like, where, where are they when you're getting beaten up? Like, how is it that that's invisible? There, there was a couple instances where I was being beaten up and I, I could see a teacher watching the occurrence. Um, obviously, teachers aren't allowed to step in physically between students, but there was no attempt made verbally to break up the altercation. And so, you know, there was people watching me get beat up. And in times I pushed him off of me or tried to swing at him, but that's what they would take notice of is, you know, I, I allegedly um, made the situation worse. I escalated it by pushing back. That just seems so backwards and wrong to me. Like what mm-hmm. the heck? Um, so where was the school? Where were the teachers, the principal? Like, how did they play a role or did they play a role? Or did you try to get them to play a role? Like, what happened with that? Yeah, so because of the progressive discipline system, I learned quickly from a young age that it's best to stay quiet and suffer by myself in, in the bullying system. Because, you know, I would tell my parents, my parents would talk to the principal, the principal would talk to their parents, and they would get in trouble, and then it would get worse for me. And I saw that connection and just decided to cut it off at me. Why am I telling people? It's just getting worse. So I didn't tell people that I was being bullied. And even when I did, I'd come in from being beaten up on recess, and I'd talk to to somebody in the office, one of the office administrators. I'd say, you know, I was... I was hit and hurt at recess. And they say, oh, sh- sh- you're fine. Go back to class. We'll deal with it. And then nothing ever comes of it. So teachers and principals really didn't play as big as a part as they should have. Um, I remember a teacher saw me getting beat up once and just kind of sat me down and said, you know, you need to man up. You need to you need to toughen up a little bit. And so being young, you want, you want to listen to your teachers. So I'm thinking, do I have to get more aggressive? And I'm having all these questions pop into my head that nobody can answer for me because I'm in trouble if I do something, but it's worse for me if I don't. So, yeah, I mean, over, over the years, teachers and principals really didn't play a big role. And then even once... The, the bullying with that one student in grade six got so bad 
to the point where the police got involved and um, a firearm was seized after he threatened to kill me with said firearm. Um, so a student the, at school threatened to shoot you? Yes. And, and, then and told you I, what gun he was going to use? Yep. So there was a student at my school that threatens to kill me and two other students with um, a very specific handgun. And I thought, you know, what's he going to do? We're in grade six. Like, seriously. So I don't think much of it. And I'm still not talking to my parents or any adult about the, the almost torment that I'm being put through at school. So one of the other students took it seriously and told his mother and the mother called the police and the police went to this bully's household and found that specific handgun with ammunition. And that kind of shocked everyone. And then I finally told my parents what was happening. And, you know, they were marching into that office every other day, it seemed, because I was still being harassed. I was still being abused at school. And, you know, nothing was done. This, this student was given so many chances because allegedly they had some mental, mental health um, diagnoses. And, I mean, I'm all for supporting people with mental health diagnoses in school but it comes to a point when when do we draw the line for the other students well yeah i mean there should be supports put in place if someone has a mental health issue they need to be um you know helped therapy or whatever mm -hmm. the case is um and and yeah like other student safety i'm sure um and, and i'm not sure if you know this this gun was probably the parents gun and the parents were probably talking about it in front of the kid and the kid knows about it like what happened with the mm -hmm. parents yeah so um the gun was seized and i mean not not much was done because i believe one of the parents had passed away and this was their gun and so it, apparently there was some gray area and, you know, police couldn't do much other than seize the weapon. So it was just kind of left at that from what I understand. And it was a very difficult home life in this household for, for the student. And I mean, I can understand why all these feelings and emotions were being brought to school. Um, but there was no support for him, which just breaks my heart because, you know, the student's struggling so much at home and is now putting that onto me. Like, by supporting that student, we could have stopped that chain of, of harm and abuse. What happened afterwards with the student? Did they continue to act out? Yep, they continued to act out. Um, they remained at my school for another six to eight months before getting expelled, um, which was very kind of last minute. Um, he, uh, a friend of mine er, stood up for me at, at lunch break and we're walking in and there's a brick hallway that we have to, to go through to get back into the school. And the bully comes up grabs my friend's head and slams it into the wall right in front of the teacher. And so the teacher grabs the student and drags him 
to the office, and then he gets expelled. And this is after we had a lockdown over this student of, you know, he has some sort of sharp object is threatening to kill people. We did a, a shelter in place over the student. There was death threats. There was still physical abuse nearly daily to me. So the school finally said enough is enough and expelled the student. Yeah, what I'm hearing is is insane to me. I mean, these things are very dangerous and these are children. And everybody is very protective of children typically. So how the heck does this go on for so long? Mm -hmm. it, I think it was just kind of a perfect storm of, you know, the student allegedly has mental health issues and, you know, the, the progressive discipline system wasn't really working. And I hope, part of me hopes it was a perfect storm and that this was a one-time occurrence. But then part of me knows that other students have gone through nearly exactly what I've gone through. And, you know, it hurts to know that this is such a widespread issue. It, it is. I mean, I went to the same high school as you went to in the same town, and that was a long time ago. And mm. it was very similar. I had kids threaten me with you know, essentially deadly weapons. Uh, I had a screwdriver pulled on me at the back of the bus on the way home, and he threatened to stab me. Um, stuff like this was happening, and I don't recall anything being done about it. People would, you know, push kids down the stairs and all sorts of crazy stuff. It sounds pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So what can they do? What, can, what, what do schools need to do? And what are you doing to help push this along? Yeah, so, I mean, the school just, they need to document things. That's a big first step, is documenting what's happening. And after going through all of this torment, in the last couple months, I have gone on a journey to find any proof that I was bullied. I have a partial memory block of my elementary school years because of the trauma I endured. And that's a common symptom of PTSD and stuff I struggle with. So I'm left wondering how much of this stuff in my head is real. Is it all real? So there's a lot of questions that I need answered or want answered. And so I turned to the school board. I went to the highest person I could and just said, like, listen, I need records on me and the other students. Is there any way we can get them? And it was a fairly welcoming response. They said, absolutely, we can look through this, contact your principal, and we can, we can start looking for anything that might be in your records. So they looked through all the computer records. There's nothing saying I was bullied. There's one thing in my Ontario student record, which is typically for academic notes from teachers every year. They'll put something in your OSU or OSR. And the one thing is a teacher said something along the lines of, you know, Emerson is very emotional in the, in the school environment or he doesn't react well to negative input. 
And so this teacher saw that I was acting differently in, in the, in the school area and did nothing. There was no changes made. That was from the worst year of my bullying. And, you know, the teacher saw I was, I was struggling with something and wrote it down and nothing came of it. And so then I went higher. I went to some of the, the really high ups in HWDSB. Um, some of the relationships I've forged through the work I'm doing with Voices Against Bullying. And they have the highest access, the highest, you know, allowance to get to these, these papers. And even they came back and said, there's no proof anywhere that you were being bullied so violently. Even the police report or the, the gun incident that was nowhere to be found in my records or the students' records. And so I'm left wondering, you know, I went, there was a couple months there where I was just, did anybody care that a student was being bullied so relentlessly that they thought of taking their own life and was self-harming and, you know, living this, in this, this hell that has been created by other students. And so now I'm working with these, these uh, executives and administrators in the HWDSB on getting a reporting system down, getting a way for teachers to input an instance and have the principal sign off that it's been dealt with and then it gets filed away. So I think that's a big first step. Another step that's being taken, the um, Safe School Review Panel that was commissioned after the death of Devin Bracky Salvi has just inputted their, their uh, big report of what the, the game plan is on how to fix bullying. And I haven't read it in its entirety, but the initial report that was released seems to have some really good ideas along the lines of switching around the progressive discipline um, approach to hopefully act as more of a rehabilitation instead of punishment, which I think is a good first step for, for protecting both parties of the bully and the targeted individual. I mean, that's great. I hope that they're able to interact with and collaborate with people who actually know how to do some of these things because I don't think mm -hmm. there's expertise available necessarily in the school system as it is to even know what to do. Um, so I hope they are collaborating. That's an area of my interest as well is how to manage and change curriculums for younger kids to get them to better understand relationships between emotions, feelings, uh, their own self-identity, and the I guess, impact of their actions on others. And I mean, something I've had to, to come to terms with and something that uh, Voices Against Bullying has been working on is just finding a way to get external people inside the HWDSB. Because it's hard enough to get processes changed and rules changed within all the bureaucracy of... The HWDSB, there's so many levels it has to go through. It's like a trickle process to get any change done. It takes years to change 
process and policies. And in those years, we've got people getting injured. We've got people going through mental torment. And now we've got kids dying. Um, it's, it's an urgent matter. And the HWDSB doesn't work well with urgency. So the change is going to have to come from the outside. And we're going to have to support the children best we can from the outside. So that means vetting people to come in and do assemblies. Um, people that teach stuff like how to deal with big emotions and, you know, how your actions can affect others. We need to get, uh, advocacy programs like the, the one VAB is working on to get somebody into the, into those meetings with the parents and principals that know the policy of the HWDSB, know the loopholes we can take to get help for a child as fast as possible. Because as awful as it is, Devin Bracky Salvi, who was stabbed to death at school as a result of bullying, he was the first student to be murdered, but he was not the first student to die as a result of bullying. People have taken their lives countless times just in Hamilton over bullying that they've gone through. And having, just being one of those statistics of, I could have been another number of somebody who died, that has given me a new, a new fire to, to change this. Because I, I've been there and I know how urgent this matter is. And just for the listeners, the HWDSB is the local school board. Yes. Yeah, it's the, the local public school board. Right. Yeah. And the um, Voices Against Bullying movement, um, is there any way, you know, if listeners are interested in learning more, where should they go to learn more about that? Yeah, so we're mostly on Facebook right now. Um, we started as a Facebook group um, just under Voices Against Bullying. And then you can also go to voicesagainstbullying.ca, and that's our our big website. Um, other than that, if you want to know know more about me, the Flamborough Review has done some pieces on me. Yeah, we're we're just in the beginning of building up our our image, but we're getting there. And. What can people do to show their support? You know, can people go and contact someone or voice some concern to someone? Or, you know, sometimes the more public outcry there is pushes people a little bit. I mean, the best we can do right now is keep this conversation going. Because I hate to say it, but some of the people that were on this anti-bullying movement early on um, right after Devin's passing, they have since left because this is not a hot topic anymore. It's out of the news headlines. It's moved on. There's new news to focus on. And so the best we can do right now is keep this conversation going. Keep it loud enough that other people are still catching on, that, that news outlets are still interested. Because if we lose that momentum then there's going to be no pressure on the school boards to make a change. Right. And so 
we're looking at things from different angles. There is the support that the schools should be doing to support students who have mental health issues, who are challenged maybe at home, who are being bullied. Um, we also should have some sort of education for young kids to better understand um, some of the things we talked about in terms of emotions and the connection between action and, and um, impact on others. But there's also another part to this, and that is what each individual can do and has to do for themselves to get through whatever it is they're experiencing, whether they're experiencing difficulties at home, mental health challenges, bullying, there's a certain amount of stuff you have to do. So what have you done in terms of therapy or other types of activity to face this and to move beyond it? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long couple of years for me. I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and nightmare disorder all uh, about three years ago. And since then, I've been through CBT, DBT therapies. Um, I tried EMDR. It wasn't successful for me. Um, done a lot of self-reflection and just kind of building up that tool belt of things that can make my everyday life manageable. Because after going through so much bullying and surviving it, you're left scarred for sure. And you have to focus on yourself and, and kind of, like we said earlier, build yourself back up. And it's a lot of hard work. But once you get there, you, you wonder why you didn't do it sooner almost. So it's the, the first step is reaching out. And that's the hardest part is asking for help. Um, for me, it was just talking to my parents and adults that I trust about this. And I mean, if anybody's listening, that's, that has to go through that. It doesn't have to be a big leap of broadcasting your story to everybody on the internet or to everybody on a Facebook group. It can just be talking to an adult or loved one you trust that, you know, I'm struggling, I need help. And then taking that step further and looking for a therapist or talking to kids help phone or uh, coast or something if you're over the age of 18 um, to, to help monitor and assess you. Um yeah, mental health is a very tricky thing to go through, and it's much easier doing it with help. For sure. Um, in my experience and, and from some other people that I've spoken with, the process to help yourself, the process to do something is inherently painful and difficult, and it causes you anxiety. It causes you, you know, pain to either face what it is that's happening to come to terms with it, just to talk about it. Um, how do you get like, is it just a matter of, okay, I've just got to go through this and I understand this is going to be painful, but it's for my own good. Like what's your mental process to actually get to the point where you can do it? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, it was my suicide attempt. I saw that, you know, I'm not, well enough right now to do this by myself 
it's evident. Like the second that I realized my attempt was not successful, my brain snapped right out of it and just said, you need help, go get it. And so my hope is that other people don't have to go through that such a big, <laughs> um, like a crisis event, a big crisis event. Yeah, exactly. To, to have that aha moment. Um, and there's a metaphor I like to use of mostly because when you're struggling with mental health and when you're thinking about taking that first step of getting help, it's really hard because all I was feeling during that time was, you know, I'm not strong enough to do this on my own. Why am I not strong enough? Why do I need these pills to keep me a, a functioning person? Why do I need another person like a therapist to to check up on me and keep me okay and you know i i attribute it to i connect it in a metaphor of if you break your leg you're not asking yourself you know why am i not strong enough to fix this on my own you don't blame yourself for needing a cast or needing medication to to feel better so why do we do this with mental health you know like a broken leg, you go to the ER, you get immediate help. With mental health, if you see you're struggling, you should go to a help phone or to crisis support if you need it immediately. There shouldn't be a question of, you know, do I really need this? If you break your leg, you know you're in pain. You know you're struggling. You need crutches sometimes. That's okay. You have mental health issues. You can use that crutch of medication or a therapist. Because over time, that issue, that leg is going to heal. And one day you won't need those crutches anymore. So taking that step and reaching out is, is scary. And it's, it's a big unknown for a lot of people. But those crutches, it's okay to use them. And for a lot of people, it saves their life. They save mine. It's, it's like almost becoming a little bit more comfortable with the idea that you're openly vulnerable and people are afraid mm -hmm. to be vulnerable. They're afraid, especially with, um, I guess, opening themselves up as their internal self, their internal um, personality and saying, well, this is me in my rawest form, in my imperfect form. And that vulnerability is what I think scares a lot of people. And honestly, it is scary. It's it's okay to be scared of that, I think. Because for a lot of us, it's something we've never confronted before. But that's one of the only ways to get through this and to get better. I agree. Is, you know, sitting with yourself and having those tough conversations with a therapist. And, you know, it's all self-discovery. And especially with mental health related to bullying, you know, you need to build yourself back up. And just in any mental health aspect, there is so much more to life than just making it through a day. And when I was struggling at my worst with mental health, that's all it was, is, you know, I made it through today. And that was a big victory. But once you start to work on yourself and start to get better, you start to see the little things in life and you start to get enjoyment out of things again. And, you know, it makes those scary moments 
worth it. For sure. It can get better. And it does get better if you persevere yeah. and push through. Um, you also told mm-hmm. me before that physical activity has helped you. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I struggled and do, well, not quite so much anymore, but I, I did struggle with weight management. And it, it all came from thyroid issues, which I could have had from a young age, which just kind of explained a bit of my weight management issues at a younger age. But there's, there's four main brain chemicals that are attributed to mental health issues. And for most people, like, I remember thinking, you know, why is my brain messed up? What is wrong with me? And in reality, there's not much wrong with us when we suffer from mental illness. It's quite literally just a chemical imbalance in our brain. And that chemical imbalance can throw off so many things and change so many feelings within us that it takes a huge toll. So part of re-leveling those brain chemicals is doing things like going outside, listening to music, if that's something you enjoy. And a big one is physical activity. It releases dopamine in your brain. And dopamine is one of the four big chemicals that makes us happy. Dopamine is uh, a pleasure hormone that's released through physical activity, um, being outside. It's one of the, the, the ones that science has proven is one of the ones we need to monitor in people who have depression. And so for me, it was partly to lose weight and get healthier, but it was also to get that, that brain chemical up a little bit. And so I just, I started off at the gym with a membership and having body issues like I do from, from bullying, I decided the gym wasn't the best place for me. Um, so I kind of made my own at home gym. I've got a punching bag. I've got some weights. I've got a tractor tire that I flip and do CrossFit stuff with. So it's yielded great results for my weight loss journey, but I've also seen it's a great way to manage my stress levels and to manage that dopamine level in my brain because, you know, there's, there's, on a chemical level, there's good being done when you work out. It's not just a muscle physical level. There's, there's stuff going on in your brain that is proven to improve when you work out. And for me, it's a huge difference. I'm all on board with that as well. Um, I'm a martial artist. I have been for a long time. I started a uh, fitness training program called Spar X Fitness Training because I've learned that there's a lot more to exercise and also especially martial arts where the brain and your body is very much connected. And in order to do some of the types of learning required to help your brain out, um, you have to connect it to something physical because you are a whole being, both your physical and your mental works together. And if you neglect Mm -hmm. one or the other, you don't have a whole complete 
uh, mechanism working for you. So there's a lot that can really um, happen when you properly connect your breathing with your muscles and your synapses and all of that electrical activity that's going on and your brain just it works better yeah and i mean i didn't start like i'm now doing hour and a half workouts like that are heavy intensity heavy weights that kind of stuff but you don't have to start there like even going for a walk and being conscious of your breathing or a light jog and kind of just feeling the moment and being present. That's a big thing that I've had to work on because having anxiety, I'm always looking at past events or what's going to happen in my future and just wondering of all the unknowns, but really calming down and being in the moment, especially when working out is like some of the best time for inward reflection and just feeling everything and being conscious of my breathing and it's it's a great experience but you obviously don't have to start out at those massive workouts because it's hard to to stay on track and keep up with that if you start there so it's it's definitely a slow progression and a slow build to to big workouts and big activity but just even a walk outside can can do wonders yeah, there's not there's nothing wrong with taking your time. You have your entire life from this point forward to make progress. And if you do anything today that was more than you did yesterday, that's already a success. And then tomorrow, exactly. you don't even have to do much more, just a little bit, at least the same thing or maybe a bit more. And if you just have that mindset before you know it, yeah. you'll be doing stuff that you never thought you could. So this has been a great discussion. Emerson, do you have anything else you wanted to, to talk about or say? Honestly, I think that's about it. Just as a final message, I like to say this at the end of every podcast I've done is if you are struggling, please reach out. This world is better with you in it. And the fear and uh, stress of reaching out, it's only temporary. It does get better. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I see every life, every human life as being this beautiful, magnificent and amazing feat of reality. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty crazy if you think about it. Um, yep. It's so valuable, every life. All right. Thank you so much, Emerson. This has been a great conversation. I hope people who are listening are going to get a lot out of it and um, some inspiration and some motivation to, to help themselves or to help others. Yeah. Thank you for having me. No problem. Take care. Emerson's bullying really began in kindergarten, and I think this is where we need to start teaching kids about their nature. It's important for them to start making the connection between how they feel and how they act, the interplay between fear and anger, and how it gets resolved within ourselves and then between others. Emotions are always part of us and play an integral role in our relationship with our own identity. Empathy can only develop once we have a good understanding of our own nature. Bullies seem to be good at weaponizing thoughts and emotions, and they may not even really understand this because their behavior often starts out as a reaction or mechanism to shield or protect their own emotional state. If you think about it, it seems that bullying is an act of offense and defense triggered by fear and insecurity. 
To better manage the problem, we need to first recognize the fears or insecurities and bring them to the forefront so that they can be confronted, managed, or resolved. This requires looking inward and building up an internal strength, confidence, and understanding in each individual. Through this process, it allows an individual to refine, explore, and grow as a person. The process, however, is often not pleasant and can be painful and difficult. So rather than refine, explore, and grow, people often put up walls and shields to protect themselves from this, which ultimately suppresses their own personal growth. I think adults still struggle with this, partly because they were never really shown or taught about these concepts as children. Emerson mentioned a number of times that his sense of self-esteem and confidence was effectively destroyed when the voices of many of his peers drowned out his own inner voice, and he resigned to believe the voices of the many over his own. I've experienced this myself and found that my training in martial arts over the years helped me refine and build up my inner voice. It was sort of like being forged in a fire, though, because martial arts is the study of fighting and conflict, and that's not something I naturally gravitated towards. It's interesting that it's inherently a destructive force, but being forced to experience and confront a whole bunch of feelings and emotions during the process eventually liberates us from the fighting aspect of it. If you maintain a self-reflective and self-refinement mindset, you can move through and beyond obstacles that others may get stuck on. From what I understand, you can't really get this philosophy at every martial arts organization. Um, from my own experience, I found the Dapo Dojo to focus heavily on these concepts. But I've trained with many others, and I've taken different values and benefits from each. So as Emerson also mentioned, physical fitness was a key aspect of his recovery, and you don't even need a gym membership or a karate membership to achieve that. Even a simple walk each day is therapeutic or flipping old tires in your backyard. For anyone interested in fitness, I've begun to put together a system called SPAR-X Fitness Training. Um, it builds upon concepts in martial arts, incorporating mindfulness with a good cardio and strength-focused workout. In the interview, we discussed punishment and how it can actually make matters worse sometimes. It sounds counterintuitive, but if we step back a bit and forget all the things we think we know, it can make a lot of sense. Punishment almost seems to be this method of last resort after adults fail to try and do something else. A child may need some guidance or understanding or support or an outlet to explore their feelings, but instead, the kid's own anger and hatred are being fueled by parents and teachers who are punishing them. The punishment is done essentially because Adults find it easier to blame the kids than to help them in some circumstances. It's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're doing this deliberately. They're also oftentimes struggling with how to cope and with what to do. Some of the things we tell kids to make them feel better. Related to that, some of the things that we tell kids to make them feel better might actually be more destructive than we think. For example, we can try to drill into a kid's head that conflict is bad and being kind is good. Always be kind, caring, never fight, never hurt someone. But if we try to absolve a kid of all responsibility for something that's happening in their life, it may teach them instead to blame others more. Regardless of the circumstances of a situation, 
an individual really only has direct control over their own actions. Besides relying completely on others to help us, the only way to affect change in our lives is to also help ourselves. But if we see everything as being done to us, then it fosters a very hopeless feeling, which is quite destructive. Problem is, conflict in life is unavoidable. Each individual has something special and precious inside them. And the key is that we need to be able to defend and protect that in a balanced way, to protect ourselves. This is kind of the idea of standing up for ourselves. But not only that, also standing up for each other. This is a learning process that can be painful, as I mentioned before, and we should teach children how to help each other heal and share the discomfort of growing up. In our conversation today, it was very important that Emerson realized what was happening to him was not his fault. That's because he was starting to believe that it was 100% his fault, and it wasn't. He could not control the actions of the others. The only thing he could control is how he acted and what he did. But he was also feeling very hopeless and was struggling with this moral dilemma of fighting back or not wanting to hurt people. When things get as bad as they did for Emerson, there aren't any easy answers or solutions. There are just so many factors in the mix. I just hope that by understanding how these things play out, kind of from beginning to end, we can figure out how to better teach and support kids to enable and empower them to grow, manage conflict, explore themselves, and refine their identities in positive and balanced ways. That's all we can really do, and then the rest is up to them. It can be said that Emerson essentially lost his childhood. It was like a nightmare. It's really sad and unfortunate, but at this point, it can't be changed. I think it's important to focus on what was gained through all this, and what was strengthened. Like being forged in a fire through my martial arts training, or being forged in a fire through being bullied, some parts of us become stronger. It's a kind of learning that has no other way of being taught. Emerson is taking that strength and using it for advocacy, change, and ultimately helping others to see what he now sees. So thanks for listening again, and I hope that you were able to take something positive uh, out of this and maybe think about new ways um, that you can put into context uh, your behaviors in your life or your actions or your feelings and how that affects other people. And we'll see you next time. Take care.